Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at artists and activists and their creative pursuits, as well as producing articles on politics and entertainment. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister producer Marshall Brown and by our artist activist of the show, Master Baker, Martin Zeman. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappist Maximus contributors, Ron Hawksbrook and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers, John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family today. We begin with the death toll from the fires in Maui, and it continues to rise this morning. So far, 93 bodies have been pulled from the ashes, but officials warn that number is expected to grow in the coming days. The Lahaina fire has now become the deadliest fire in the U.S. in the past 100 years. FEMA's chief visited Maui on Saturday to see the devastation firsthand, and she spoke with residents who have lost everything, and she also heard harrowing tales. Fire emergency in Canada. An entire town is racing to evacuate right now as the flames close in and Ginger is tracking the very latest. Good morning, Ginger. Good morning to you, Rebecca. The city is Yellowknife, the capital of Canada's Northwest Territories. It's got a population of about 20,000 people and they gotta get everybody out by tomorrow when they anticipate the fire that is far too close for comfort to take over even the highway, the one that goes in and out. So this is one of 250 fires within the Northwest Territories and more than a thousand across Canada. Emergency in Greece, authorities say many parts of the country now facing a large resurgence of wildfires. Strong winds fueled fires north of Athens early Thursday morning. Right now, more than 250 firefighters have been deployed to the fire lines. Residents, at least three areas, have been asked to evacuate. CNN correspondent Ellen Jokos has the very latest reporting in from Greece. This is what is left of one of the most beautiful uh, hiking trails in the whole of Greece. I'm in Panitha Mountain. The hottest summer on record. These are some of the terrible fire reports we've been enduring this summer. Lahaina, Maui, one of the most beautiful and picturesque towns in the entire Pacific Ocean, burnt down in August in one of the worst fires in U.S. history. Canada has been enduring one wildfire after another, with much of that beautifully forested country endangered. And poor Greece, the cradle of Western civilization, has endured one fire after another in what is being called the most fire-filled summer in world history. We've also been told now that July 2023 is the hottest month since records have been kept, and likely the hottest in 120,000 years, based on evidence of past temperatures found in ancient sediments and layers of ice, as well as on other paleoclimate records. We've also been told now that July 2023 was the hottest month since records have been kept, and likely the hottest in 120,000 years. 
This is based on evidence of past temperatures found in ancient sediments and layers of ice, as well as on other paleoclimate records. This July has seen record-breaking heat waves in several spots around the world, notably in the U.S. Southwest, Mexico, and China, and around the Mediterranean. The records are primarily linked to overall rising global temperatures from the excess heat trapped in the atmosphere by humans burning fossil fuels. An analysis published recently by the World Weather Attribution Group found that the heat waves in North America and Europe were virtually impossible without climate change. All three heat waves were hotter than they would have been without the boost from global warming. Snap Sessions has been doing environmental reporting since we began over five years ago. And I have been giving climate talks and presentations over the past five years for Al Gore's Climate Reality Project, over 65 in total. I wish I had been able to move on and say we human beings were finally getting our acts together. But sadly, we are not. It seems the problems involved in climate change are only getting worse. And now it feels as if our planet is raging back. Our Mother Earth appears to have had enough of us. We all know that temperatures are rising, that fires are raging, and that the climate is heating up. But now it also appears that climate tipping points, those interconnected parts of the climate system, are now teetering and susceptible to further problems. There are multiple parts of the system, but here are some of the most important that are on the edge and calling out for attention. In climate science, a tipping point is a critical threshold that, when crossed, can lead to larger and often irreversible changes in the planet's climate system. And if these tipping points are crossed, they are likely to have rather severe impacts on humanity. For example, with global temps going up between 0.8 and 3 degrees Celsius, the Greenland ice sheet would pass a tipping point and be doomed, yet the full melt might take centuries to occur. A huge danger is that if the tipping point in one system is crossed, it could cause a cascade of other tipping points, leading to severe and potentially catastrophic impacts for everything from rainforest to coral reefs. Let's look at some of our key possible tipping points. Arctic sea ice. Critical for reflecting the sun's energy back into space is disappearing as the planet warms. In addition, both the massive West Antarctic and East Antarctic ice sheets could melt. The same is true for the Greenland ice sheet. If Greenland alone melted, it could raise the sea level 20 feet. If all the melting were to happen, sea rise could be stupendous. Boreal forests, mostly in the northern hemispheres, along with adjacent permafrost areas, which are holders of a lot of CO2 and frozen methane, are now burning at an increasing rate. If this CO2 continues to be released and this long frozen methane reaches the upper atmosphere, the potential for overheating would be immense. The same is true for the Amazon rainforest. Under attack for years from agricultural interests in Brazil and known as the lungs of the planet, it could flip from a net absorber of greenhouse gases to a major emitter. And the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, which keeps the Gulf Stream running, is now teetering and could shift global weather patterns if it slowed down or stopped. Let us remember that the Gulf Stream has long brought warm waters from the Gulf of Mexico to Western Europe. If it were not for the Gulf Stream, Britain might have been as cold as northern Canada. This would have changed world history. Let us note, all of these systems are under assault from human-induced burning of fossil fuels. In the 2004 climate disaster film, The Day After Tomorrow, various tipping points are crossed and the Earth goes into freeze mode. This scared the heck out of us, but apparently millions of people don't want to hear about it. Yet, climate denialism still exists, especially among Republicans and various right-wing parties across the planet. 
Donald Trump still consistently dismisses climate change as a hoax. And in very recent polls, we find that among Republicans, 58% say the country should prioritize expanding exploration and production of oil, coal, and natural gas over alternative energy. I wonder what these reactionaries will believe when their houses are on fire or underwater from some hurricane or flood. There seems to be some movement among younger Republicans who are a bit more open to understanding the hazards of climate change, but at the top echelons of the party and all those running for president, they seem to be unmoved. And this hasn't changed much in the past decade. Let's resurrect this John Oliver piece from 2014. Incredibly, this latest damning scientific report may still face an uphill climb with some of us. There's that Gallup poll that came out last month which found one in four Americans is skeptical of all the effects of climate change and thinks this issue's been exaggerated. Who gives a shit? That doesn't matter. You don't need people's opinions on a fact. You, you might as well have a poll asking which number is bigger, 15 or 5? Or do owls exist? Or are there hats? The, the debate on climate change should not be whether or not it's, it exists, it's what we should do about it. There is a mountain of research on this topic. Global temperatures are rising, heat waves are becoming more common, sea surface temperatures are also rising, glaciers are melting, and of course no climate report is complete without the obligatory photo of a polar bear balancing on a piece of ice. As we can see from the past few summers, we seem to be in for more punishment no matter what segments of our population want to believe. If conservative Americans need to believe they can extract fossil fuels for the rest of time, they are dead wrong. But they certainly have allies amongst corporate apologists in oil-producing countries. This fall, in November to be exact, the United Nations Conference of the Parties on Climate Change will meet in the United Arab Emirates in COP28, the International Climate Conference. This year's COP meeting will be led by Sultan Al-Jaber, who would be the summit president to the horror of climate activists across the planet. Al-Jaber is both UAE's climate envoy and the founder of a renewable energy company. But he is also CEO of the state-owned Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, ADNOC. The optics of a major oil-producing country organizing the world's most important climate conference and appointing an oil company CEO to lead it are not lost on anyone, including, it seems, the hosts, the United Arab Emirates. The country has embarked on a major PR campaign to boost its green credentials ahead of the COP28 UN Climate Summit in Dubai later this year. This has promised heavy criticism from climate groups and some politicians. Perhaps even Dubai understands the irony. At the same time, researchers are raising red flags over allegations of more covert influence campaigns, as members of the COP28 team were found by outlets like The Guardian to have been editing Wikipedia pages about the conference's chief, and an army of fake social media accounts has appeared, promoting the country's climate record. The reality is that fossil fuel companies are investing only 1% of their income into green technology. Most of their income goes into more fossil fuel investment or to stockholders, and fossil fuel companies are still subsidized by world governments to the tune of over a trillion dollars. The United Arab Emirates insists it is ideally suited to host COP28. 
But some climate researchers are concerned these campaigns point to a lack of genuine ambition for the crucial summit, which comes as the world experiences record-breaking heat and devastating storms. Let's listen to Nobel Prize winner Al Gore himself put it into perspective in a very recent talk on what the fossil fuel industry does not want you to know. Maybe it's time to look at the obstacles that are standing in our way. I'm going to focus on two of them uh, this afternoon. First of all, the unrelenting opposition from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, a lot of people think they're on side and trying to help, but let me tell you, and the activists will all tell you this, every piece of legislation, whether it's at the municipal level, the regional or provincial level, the national level, or the international level, they're in there with their lobbyists and with their fixers and with their uh, revolving door colleagues doing everything they can to slow down progress. So speeding up progress means doing something uh, about this. They have used fraud on a massive scale. Uh, they've used falsehoods on an industrial scale and they've used their legacy political and economic networks, lavishly funded, to capture the policymaking process in too many countries around the world. Uh, and the Secretary General said, the fossil fuel industry is the polluted heart of the climate crisis. Now that's not to say that the, the men and women who've worked in fossil fuel for the last century and a half are not due our gratitude, they are. And they didn't cause this, but for decades now, the companies have had the evidence, they know the truth, and they consciously decided to lie to publics all around the world in order to calm down the political momentum for doing something about it, so they could make more money. It's simple as that. And now they have brazenly seized control of the COP process, especially this year's COP, in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And concern has been building about this for quite some time. I remember when there were so many fossil fuel delegates uh, in Madrid, but by the time we got to Glasgow a year and a half ago, the delegates from the fossil fuel companies made up a larger group than the largest national delegation. Now why? Why? Because they're helping, they're not helping, they're trying to stop progress. And last year in Egypt, they had more delegates than the combined delegations of the 10 most affected uh, countries by climate. And now, this year's host, which is a petrostate, uh, has appointed the president of COP28 in spite of the fact that he has a blatant conflict of interest. He's the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, owned by Abu Dhabi, their emissions are larger than those of ExxonMobil, and they have no credible plan whatsoever to reduce them. So this is the person in charge of the cop. He's a nice guy, he's a smart guy, but a conflict of interest is a conflict of interest. And a matter of fact, they have a plan now to have a, a, a new increase in their emissions. Their plan is to increase the production of both oil and gas by as much as 50% by 2030, which is the same time frame when the world is trying to reduce emissions by 50% by 2030. And the same person has been put in charge of both of those efforts. Direct conflict of interest. 
I think it's time to say, wait a minute, do you take us for fools? Do you think you can just completely remove the disguise and we won't notice? The fossil fuel industry has captured this process and is slowing it down. And we need to do something about it. Sometimes Al Gore still has the fire in the belly. I have seen him give about a dozen of his updated inconvenient truth talks at various climate conferences and have rarely seen him be so angry. But there is good reason. The amount of political greenwashing, rewriting of Wikipedia pages, and general bullshitting promoting the UAE's supposed reasonable climate record will be overwhelming. And it will all be lies. No amount of malarkey can change our path at this point. If we are determined to burn up, we will burn up, with biblical-style flooding accompanying raging fires. As Al Gore used to say at our climate talks, quote, we are enduring a nature hike through the book of revelations, unquote. I have no desire to be a climate Cassandra. I just want to stand up for my little granddaughter and for the future. And I don't want bullshitters to get away with bullshitting. We lost comedian George Carlin about 15 years ago, but we didn't lose his voice or his message. Let's let George bring us home. Besides, there is nothing wrong with the planet. Nothing wrong with the planet. The planet is fine. The people are fucked. <laughs> Difference. Difference. The planet is fine. Compared to the people, the planet is doing great. Been here four and a half billion years. Did you ever think about the arithmetic? Planet has been here four and a half billion years. We've been here, what, 100,000? Maybe 200,000? And we've only been engaged in heavy industry for a little over 200 years. 200 years versus four and a half billion. And we have the conceit to think that somehow we're a threat? that somehow we're going to put in jeopardy this beautiful little blue-green ball that's just a-floating around the sun. The planet has been through a lot worse than us. Been through all kinds of things worse than us. Been through earthquakes, volcanoes, plate tectonics, continental drift, solar flares, sunspots, magnetic storms, the magnetic reversal of the poles, hundreds of thousands of years of bombardment by comets and asteroids and meteors, worldwide floods, tidal waves, worldwide fires, erosion, cosmic rays, recurring ice ages. The planet, the planet, the planet isn't going anywhere. We are. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon or buy me a coffee. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Deutsche Brotbacken, an interview with master baker Martin Zeman. Back in 1989, I had to take time off from our Burns and Nunn double act tour. I got a job as a baker for about five months in the early days of the Café Beaujolais Brickery, also known as Bakery. I learned to make a variety of breads from French baguettes to crunchy, crusted Austrian sunflower bread and a variety of wood oven pizzas. I never got used to the hours put in by bakers. I had to be at work at around 4 a.m., but I liked dealing with dough, watching it rise, and then moving loaves of bread around the oven as it baked. Still, I was never very good at it. The guy I trained to replace me was a better baker than I was at the end of a week and ended up working at the Beaujolais Bakery for about 10 years. Deutschland ist Brotland, zum Frühstück als Abendbrot oder für unterwegs. 
Kaum ein anderes Nahrungsmittel bestimmt so stark unseren Speiseplan. Der Geschmack und die Vielfalt von deutschem Brot gelten weltweit als einzigartig. Yes, Germany is breadland, as the announcer just said. In my opinion, the world's best bread is baked in Central Europe, most especially in the German-speaking countries of Germany, Austria and Switzerland. I say this based on spending some years traveling and working in these countries. I know their bakeries quite well. Ask Germans what they miss above all else when they go abroad, and there's one consistent answer. Bread. Their bakeries are all-star teams of shelf after shelf of delicious bread. Bread is not only a significant part of German cuisine, it is the backbone of their daily routine. According to the bread register of the German Institute of Bread, there are 3,200 officially recognized types of bread in this country. And German bread has since been designated an official UNESCO intangible cultural heritage. There are more bakeries and more varieties of bread in Germany than in any other country in the world. Was macht so ein gutes Brot eigentlich aus? Just what makes German bread so good? And why is it unlike any other bread known to Europe? It is dark, chewy and dense, composed mainly of whole grains such as rice, spelt and millet. Wheat is taking a back seat compared to other countries, where it is the dominant grain, resulting in lighter, whiter and starchier and less healthy bread types. Rye is in fact more nutritious than wheat and it grows in colder climates, lending itself to cultivation in the north. The use of rye results in a distinctive, sharp, almost sour flavor that some people consider an acquired taste. But it's beloved in Central Europe. Rye and spelt-based breads have a coarse, compact, and dense texture, which is a significant deviation from bread in the rest of Europe. In addition, sourdough starter is consistently used in German, Austrian, and Swiss bread making. And the result is distinct and delicious. And it's not only the loaves. Their rolls, known as Brötchen, are eaten regularly for breakfast and are at least as popular as loaves. Brötchen, also known as Semmel, Brötli, and Weck in other parts of these countries, usually have crusty, crispy crusts. In the following interview, you will hear Meister Becker Martin Zeman pointedly say, no soft buns and doughy insides. A typical German breakfast will start with Brötchen and add cheese, sliced meats or veggies, and a variety of other condiments. When they are homemade or baked with panache, they are hard to beat. What follows is an interview with Meister Becker, Master Baker, Martin Zeman, who I met at an improv workshop in Heidelberg about 20 years ago. I finagled an invitation from Martin to the Malzahn Bakery in Heidelberg, where he has been manager for many years. He gave us an outstanding tour in May 2023 and started by taking us downstairs to his mill machine, where organic Vollkorn wheat, rye and spelt are all milled in traditional fashion. Okay, I'm here with Martin Zeman, my old friend. Martin is a baker in Heidelberg and works at the Malzahn Bakery. The Malzahn Bäckerei is a small bakery chain with four bakeries in Heidelberg. Four branches and I'm the boss of one of the four. 
We have a bakery and four shops or branches in Heidelberg, and we deliver to health food stores. We only make whole grain products, 100% organic and artisanal for 40 years. And like you said, I'm a seventh generation baker, and unfortunately there won't be a new generation after me because I don't have any children, and my brother's daughter doesn't want to be a baker. My father baked in Hanover, and my grandfather baked in Eisleben in the Hartz Mountains. His uncle had a pastry shop, and my grandfather was a baker at a coal mine. He baked the bread for the people there. And before that, my ancestors had small bakeries in Eisleben. That's in the Hartz Mountains. Yes, in the Hartz, the mountains there. This is one of the most beautiful places in Germany, the Hartz Mountains. I also wanted folks to know something that is important to me. The Germans have a very, very good reputation as bakers. Makes me happy to hear that. Yes, I've read, for example, the UN, the United Nations, they've listed German baking as one of the most culturally significant or so cultural traditions in the world. So the Germans are praised and they are greatly appreciated as bakers. And it is typical that there is a bakery on almost every street in Germany. Can you tell us a bit about German baking traditions? Well, earlier, there were really, really, really many bakeries in Germany. And my ancestors had some too. And it's from this tradition that I also became a baker. And now German bakeries are known above all for their bread. Many different types of bread. Natural breads and many also made from sourdough. Unfortunately, in recent years, more and more of these small bakers have closed. And there are fewer bakers left. So that's, I don't know, there used to be maybe 40 to 50,000 bakeries in Germany. But now there are 9,000. So it's estimated anyway. And now many more are chains. Yes, yes, larger bakeries with many branches. That's similar too. That's not quite like in the USA, but it's going in that direction. Yeah, I, I love German bread, whole grain bread with sourdough. This mix is wonderful. The Germans also use a lot of grains, for example, not just wheat grain. There is rye bread. And can you, can you describe that a bit too, the different grains used, etc.? So yes, well, let me tell you what we use in our Malzahn bakery. So we use wheat, rye, and spelt, which are the main grains. And we also have emmer and barley as a bread additive. And we grind the rye, spelt, and wheat with our own grain mill. That was the machine in the basement. That was the machine in the basement. And it is a characteristic of whole grain bakeries that they have a grain mill. Yes, and you can remember the grain is crushed between two stones and is fed into the bakery with the blower and is as relatively fresh as possible. So this may be a few hours old, but definitely not days or weeks old. And all of our products are made from 100% whole grain cereals. Yeah, 
Bei uns sind alle Produkte zu 100% aus Vollkorngetreide. That, that heißt bei uns uh, whole wheat. Yeah, that, that uh, means whole uh, wheat for us, but vollkorn has more aspects to it. I think you can buy a whole grain bread in a German bakery and it's full of small grain pieces. And there's also this wonderful sourdough taste and it's incredibly tasty. Here in America we have whole wheat bread, but it's mostly already ground up. But in Germany you get the grain chunks too, and that's really extra crispy. Here in America, we have whole wheat bread, vollkorn brot, but it's um, meistens schon gemalt oder gemult. It's already ground up. And in Deutschland, man kriegt auch die Getreidenstücke auch, und das ist wirklich besonders. Knusprig live. A loaf of vollkorn bread is a wonderful thing. Yes, yes, thank you. So we actually have breads like in the USA with fine whole wheat or whole meal flour, but also breads with grains with different whole grains, so colorfully mixed, and all breads are with sourdough. In English, uh, with a dough, with a with a dough. From the honey, we get the bacteria that gives us the sourdough taste and multiply them over several stages. And from this, the bread dough is created. Yeah, so here in the basement, there was this mill machine, and as you said, you have milled the different grains, and then they are ground. And then we went upstairs, and you showed us a so-called miracle powder. These miracle powders, uh, can you describe them? It's sort of an old-fashioned method. Yes, I think it's also available in the USA. It's called Sekrov Abak, and it's made from honey, and has the vinegar, lactic acid, and yeast cultures it needs to make a fluffy leaven. And this miracle powder makes it a little bit easier for us. We can just multiply that over three or two stages, and then we can originally call the sourdough what the manufacturer called it, honey salt bronze. Honey is mixed with salt and freshened over several days, and then there is honey salt bread, and the miracle power is a small technical advance, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, these technical advances. Is there anything else to share? We have a miracle powder, and you showed us that. And then you also had a large tub kettle that was mixed with 60 kilos of grain and a little bit of salt. And then a miracle powder is thrown into this mixture, too. Can you describe that? So the sourdough starter goes into the sourdough and multiplies overnight and produces vinegary acid, lactic acid, and yeast. And then the bread dough is made, and there they rise again. And then the whole thing is formed into bread dough, and then the different ingredients are added. Coarse grains, barley, oats, millet, sunflower seeds, whole grains are then mixed in. And this is how our bread is made. Yeah. And then 
wir waren da und dann du hast uns dann Yes, and then we were there and you showed us the mill. And then I think we were on the next level and then you pulled out a massive dough and you threw it on the table. Du hast eine Masse Teig um, ausgenommen und auf einen Tisch uh, geworfen und du sagte, okay, here is the Teig, uh, um, davon wir werden dann And you said, uh, okay, here's the dough for our project. Und, um, we will then do Swabian Souls. And you just said, we need a half an hour for rising time. And then we went outside, we sat at a very nice table, and there we drank coffee, and we ate very, very lovely chocolate cookies. Can you describe that moment in the process? You needed half an hour, the dough needed to rise again. Is that correct? Is that correct? Yes, to form. So we took a time out together. Swabian souls is a very soft dough that lies for a long time and is then spritzed with water. Then it comes on the table and below it is water. Then you scrape the dough off the table. We did that together. I helped you. And then you all formed loaves. You did it, Christine did it, and so did Vedi and Sabina. As I recall, you made the prettiest one. Yes, I believe mine was the so-called monster Swabian soul. Yes, yes, the monster soul, the Swabian monster. So the Swabian souls, they're like baguettes in French, you know, the little loaves, and they're made out of whole meal flour, etc. And then, so after this half an hour to rise them, we worked in the bakery, and then we formed the loaves, and then we placed them on, uh, what's that called? Um, yes, and on the bakle, or baking pans. Oh, we got the bakle, we got, we got the bakle baking pans ready, and then please, please continue. Yes, and then we had the bakle or pans ready, yes, we had them all upstairs, and then we relaxed for a short time. And then we sprinkled the loaves with cumin and salt, and we put them in the oven. And that was the 20 minutes we sat outside in the courtyard and drank coffee and ate cake and cookies. And during that time, the Swabian souls baked until they puffed up pretty big and were brownish. You can remember, the photo is still on Facebook. Well, yes, I already have that on Facebook, and we're going to use that for this podcast. I also show photos from the visit and the oven. It's all modern with computers and everything. It's all very organized. Das ist ganz mit Computers und alles, uh, du musst das uh, ganz organisiert You have, what is that called, uh, a timer in English? Timer heißt das auf Englisch. Yes, the Zeitschalter, it's called a timer. Yes, a timer. So you have to start every morning at 3 or 3.30 in the morning. You have to go to the bakery, and you can't just start the oven from cold. The oven must be ready. Can you describe this, the early morning routine and the life of a baker? Das Leben eines, eines Bäckers. Zwei Bäcker von uns fangen 
Two of us bakers start between 3 and 3.30 in the morning. And when you come, the timer has already started and the oven is already warm. And one of the bakers makes dough, sour bread, and rolls. And the other baker cures croissant, that is, French croissant dough, and then at some point starts to bake. And after an hour, two or three more colleagues come in, and then we work. We make five kinds of rolls and loaves of bread, volkorn kaksen, sweets, pastries, and then we bake our daily program. And we do that six days a week. Well, I'm not there every day. I work four to five days a week. Und das machen wir sechs Tage in der Woche. Also ich bin nicht jeden Tag da. Man arbeitet bei uns vier bis fünf Tage in der Woche. And then on Sunday, Malzahn is closed? The bakery is closed on Sundays. We aren't there on Sunday. The baker sleeps. The baker finally gets some free time. Time to play some improv. Most certainly, yes, exactly. I have to say that Martin is an old improv friend of mine. We met in Heidelberg at Drama Light Summer Workshops many years ago. Yes, at that Kulturfenster. Yes, summer school. Yeah, and they have regular summer school, uh, yeah, and we met there. And Martin was already famous for his morning routine. He'd arrive there very early and make coffee and bring us rolls. That, of course, was a big treat, as we say in English. For all of us. So that's typical. Then you come to the bakery early. Can you describe how you like it? And what is typical of this bakery for Malzahn? Yes, we had an oven. It used to be on the first floor, and loaves used to be baked directly on stone. And finally, the dough must grow. The dough must have risen. Be at the right point to bake. The dough must be steamed, and you have to watch how long it has to wait to bake. And then there are tricks that are difficult to describe. The pastry is valuable and crispy and crunchy. And that is typical for German pastries. No soft buns. Yes, yes, exactly. Now that's wonderful. Crispy rolls. That is important for me, for sure. You do it naturally. We have mostly described types of bread here. I would like to know if you are also a baker who makes sweets, too. I don't mean candies. I mean cakes and cookies and everything that is typical of Central Europe, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, etc. These are also some of the best creamy cakes at patisseries. Do you have many experiences as a pastry baker? I'd say I've specialized. I'm a, I'm a specialist in wholemeal baking. We make 
Elise Lebkuchen at our wholemeal bakery, which is a specialty from Germany. And we've been doing it for a long time. And honey gingerbread and what is also something special with us. That is Nussecken and nut quarters. They are also very tasty. Those are the special sweet products, but there's a second profession in Germany, Switzerland, and Austria. It's not called a baker, but a confectioner, and they are specialists in sweet things. Ah, yes, I have to admit, the first time I was in Vienna, when I was a student, I found a pastry shop, and I was so amazed by this wonderful cake with lots of cream. It was so wonderful. I ate there twice a day while I was in Vienna. Kuchen twice a day. Ah, I was so excited about the cake, and I think that's a big highlight of Central Europe. These wonderful pastry shops like that. I asked this question when you gave us the tour. We asked, what is your favorite type of bread? Can you describe your favorite breads and how to make them? Well, my favorite type of bread is the so-called mixed bread, which is half rye and half wheat. And that's one, one of the loaves we grind up, and is still baked with a crust. And that is the standard sourdough, our standard bread. And that's what I like best. And then rye bread. That is also a standard bread, just not with wheat and rye, but 100% rye. These are my favorite breads. I, uh, that's wonderful. I want to describe a typical German breakfast for Americans, for those outside of Germany who are listening. A typical German breakfast is bread with cheese or meat, but there is always bread or rolls. And the rolls are small rolls, what the Germans call rolls. But they're different from rolls. They're really round, crusty loaves, and they give you a real kick. And then maybe you add a, a little bit of spreadable cheese or a bit of meat, and then you can eat beautifully, and that's typical. Christine and I here at home, sometimes we eat bread rolls instead of American breakfast. It's really popular with us. Can you buy German rolls and German bread in your area? Unfortunately, here you can find some German bread, mostly like pumpernickel. But German rolls are very difficult to find. There are bakeries in the big cities, but German bakeries are hard to find. 
about comes to fin in New York City, Los Angeles. New York City, like Los San Angeles, Francisco, maybe San, San Francisco, Francisco, but much harder yeah, to find. Finden, yeah. Well, so there's no German bakery in Mendocino. Now, if I had more time, I would open one, but I'm not young anymore. <laughs> yes, we would be happy for sure. Yes, hopefully in the future we might see the influence of the German baking. Maybe with this podcast, there'll be a possibility that someone will be influenced to open a German bakery. Yes, then you can come back with your camera and record, and we'll do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... So, yeah, I would uh, like to. Yes, that turned out to be a wonderful bakery tour. Yes, yes. So thank you very much, Martin, for this chance to interview you again. The tour for us in the Maltzon Bakery was really a highlight. I recommend this for other people, but it might be too much work for you. I was very happy that you were there. With me or with us, it was great fun with you. You have a very lovely wife. Yeah, yeah she is very happy too, and she sends her best wishes to you. Do you have anything else to add, Martin? No, above all, I just wanted to tell you that the next time you're in Germany, we'll repeat the whole tour and make sure the camera is running and the recorder works. Yes, thank you very much, Martin. And yes, Christine was happy too, and she sends appreciative hugs to you. If there was ever a time I wish Snap Sessions was available in Smellorama or Tasterama, this interview with Martin Zeman would be that interview. When Martin pulled those Schwäbische Zähle out of the oven, my mouth was watering and I was in seventh heaven. There is nothing I like more than bread, and my favorite bread is German bread. Schon allein und jetzt geht's los. Scheibe Brot, was kommt drauf? Show, show, Schokocreme. Ham, ham, ham. Yam, yam, yam. Das war gut. And thanks to our artist of the show, Master Baker Martin Zeman. Our production team includes Techmeister producer Marshall Brown, writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, logo designer Daniel Stieglitz, and student interns Max Oatney and Frey Barty. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an outlook, both local and international, on the arts, and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappist Maximus contributors, Ron Hawksbrook, and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers, John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family today 